scriptures say that laughter is good for the soul and a light heart strengthens the bones. So I'm going to tell you a little story of my week this week and hopefully that will make you laugh. That's the, old, that's the sole purpose of this. Uh, Monday night and Tuesday night, I, uh, I pretended to be the youth pastor and I went up to Pondo to hang out with the kids a little bit, but honestly, I wanted to check out the speaker, the the camp speaker. I wanted to make sure that, you know, he wasn't teaching our kids anything that they shouldn't be taught, so I was a little protective. So I just wanted to see, and so I kind of went in uh, checking out youth camp with a bit of a critical spirit. So, because I'm in, I'm like, I'm going to check this guy out and make, make sure our kids are safe. And so I was like, you know, okay, is he preaching from the Word? Is it gospel? Is it anything weird going on? So that's, that, that was my mindset. Um, but isn't God funny? Yeah. Yeah. He's got a way of reaching us. And I just kind of turned into a teenager there for a moment because the words that this evangelist was speaking was speaking to me. And in that moment, I felt uh, a bit convicted it was pure gospel. I mean, he saved the entire camp, all, what, 200, 300 kids. He saved them twice, maybe three times over the whole weekend. So some people got saved three times. It was awesome. I even got saved. <laughs> I made a decision. I raised my hand. Uh, okay, but here's what, here's what convicted me. Because he was talking about getting saved on night one. On night two, he was talking about living saved. So you get to be saved, and then you get to live saved, and then you get to save other people. So in the area of living saved, you become more like Christ. And the, more, the only way that you can become more like Christ is spending quality time in his presence. I'm like, okay, dude, whatever. I, like, I haven't heard or preached that before. I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's all about relationship and not about religion, right? So like, I'm all, okay, been there, done that. And then he says something that is like, oh, I hate this guy. <laughs> then he says, then he says, you get to do your personal time with Jesus. You don't have to do your personal time with Jesus. There's a mindset. There's a shift. You don't have to spend time with Jesus, but we go in saying, oh, I've got to do it. I've got to do my daily devotional because Pastor Josh told me to do this. Oh, I've got to go to church. Oh, I've got to sing and worship. No, my friends, you get to go to church free in this country. You get to worship God in freedom and in truth. You don't have to. You get to. And every day when you wake up, you get the incredible, beautiful opportunity to spend time with Jesus. And so, yeah, I was a little convicted because sometimes I was like, oh, I've got to do this. You know, I'm the pastor of the church. I better do this. I've got to do this. I have to lead by example. I have to, I have to, I have to right? It's like, no, I get to. My, my friends, there's so much freedom when we, when, we, when we just make that switch. Oh, I get to do this. This is good. 
This is enjoyable. Like this is fun. This grows me. This strengthens me. This is healthy. And so yesterday, and I've been doing it all week, yesterday, first thing in the morning, I make a roll out of bed. I, I stretch a little bit. And then I'm, I'm, I'm in the Word. I'm in Philippians right now. That's my personal time. I'm not preaching out of Philippians, but for myself, I, I am learning from God from the book of Philippians. I'll probably preach that some other day. I'm going to preach Philippians some other you know, series. But right now, it's for me. And so I'm having a great time in Philippians. I, am, I get to be in Jesus. I'm enjoying God's presence. It's beautiful. My prayer time, like I don't have to pray, I get to pray. Yeah. It's like it feels so good to, just to get to do this and not feel guilty about not doing it. I get to do this. And so I just had a great time with the Lord. It's like, all right, that was sweet. Time to get to work, time to shower, time to shave. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I let my beard go. I went a week without shaving, and so I'm going to have to get the buzzer out and buzz it first, because I like, got this gnarly, manly beard. You all should be jealous. But it's just like, it's just incredible. And so I have to buzz it first before I can shave it, or else it's just not going to go well. And I just cleaned the bathroom a few days earlier. I'm like, man, if I buzz this beard off, it's going to get these clippings everywhere, Mako's going to hate me. I know. I'll just do it outside. And so our house, we have our, it's not a two-story house, but we do have a second story. It's, it's a one-bedroom. It's basically, it's a loft. And it has a little patio with a slider on it. It's like, okay, I'm just going to buzz this thing off outside so I don't get these beard trimmings everywhere, right? Because I just cleaned the bathroom. So I go outside. I'm beginning to buzz. Uh, I, have a, I have two dogs. I have a Belgian Malinois and a Poodle mix. They are, are well, all, we love all of our animals. And my Belgian Malinois has to be at my side, on my lap, in my face at all times. I consider her my high-maintenance girlfriend. <laughs> she is the supermodel of dogs. She's high-need. So she's always got to be by me or she's insecure and she's kind of freaking out. So I go outside. I shut the door. I turn my back on my dog. She freaks out, jumps on the door, and latches the latch. So now I am locked outside of the porch, um, and it's kind of, again, it's not a two-story house. It's just like this little bungalow thing. It's, it's a really weird construction. The porch is not a real porch. It's the roof. And keep in mind, I just rolled out of bed. So my dog, I turn my back on my dog, and I get locked outside, literally on my roof, in my underwear. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm shaking the door, I can't get it open. Now, to make things worse, it was not a, it was not a boxer or a boxer brief morning. It was a tidy morning. 
To make matters worse, it was not a tidy whitey morning. This was underwear that I got as a gag gift from my sister-in-law. And so they're a, they're a print. And they are, they're, you know, the spandex tidy shorts, they are a print of cut-off jean shorts. So think of what the village people would wear. Oh my gosh, I'm locked out, and I'm in these really bad underwear. I'm shaking the door. Mako is on, literally on the other side of the house, in the bathroom. So I'm, running across, I'm running across the top of my roof in my underwear, and there's people walking their dogs. I'm like, dying. oh my gosh. I'm like yelling at her, I'm yelling at her, and she's not, she's not... She's not saying anything. She can't. She can't hear me. I go back around and, and I'm, I'm. I know where Sophia's room is. Like oh, sometimes she leaves her window open. Maybe she'll hear me. And so I'm. I'm on my belly in my underwear on the roof, leaning over the the, the roof, yelling at Sophia. And then my neighbor. My, my, my neighbor's like, Mr. Josh, are you okay? I'm like, no, I'm not okay. And so, and so I had to beg my neighbor to call my wife. And she's like, Mr. Josh, I'm sorry. She's not picking up the phone. I'm like, well, you at least text her because she's probably just ignoring your call. Just text her and let, let her know that her husband's stuck on the roof. So I was, I'm out there for, it seemed like hours, but probably realistically 20 minutes to half an hour. And before I ended, before I ended up in this situation, before I ended my quiet time with the Lord, <laughs> I made the mistake of saying, like, Jesus, it was so good to rub shoulders with you today. So good to be with you this morning. I am your vessel. I am your instrument of grace. I am your holy anointed one. I am your servant, your humble servant, Jesus. If there is anything that you would like to teach me today... I will submit wholeheartedly. What can I learn today? What can you teach me today? All right, so here's some options. Here's what I could have learned, maybe what you can learn. One, don't never turn your back on a dog. Literally and figuratively. Don't trust dogs. Don't turn your back on people that, that you know, are high maintenance, that, that might stab you in the back if you don't give them what they want. So never turn your back on a dog. What else could I have possibly learned? I don't know. Don't wear gay underwear. What else could I have possibly have learned? I don't know. Maybe humility it came through crystal clear. Lord, I got the message. Thank you very much. Maybe be nicer to my neighbor. Who knows? A lot of things that I could have learned. So it has nothing to do with my message. But if I can get you to laugh at my expense, you're welcome. Lighten your mood a little bit. Just be careful what you ask for, what you wish for. You just might get it. If you want to learn something from the Lord, just pray it's not humility.
My wife took pictures, so if you follow her on Instagram, you can see it. She was laughing so hard. She was doubled over, not able to breathe laughing. I still can't face my neighbor. I can't look at her. I... All right. I'm trying to, like, share the gospel with this lady. I was just like, what am I going to do? Yeah, she's going to sell her house. She's going to put her house on the market now. And I'm going to live to those weird Christians. <laughs> All right. We're in the biography of Moses. We're learning a little bit more about him. Of course, what he wrote and what he did. Incredible leader, incredible man of God. Right up there, maybe number two next to Jesus, if, if, as far as most significant contributions in the Bible. I mean, I know David's a runner-up, and so is Paul, but we have a big chunk of the foundation, the Word of God that was written by Moses. And one of them, we're talking about his life, but I can't talk about his life without talking about the number one contribution that Moses gave to all humanity, and that's the Ten Commandments. It's a big deal. Ten Commandments, it, we, we used to put it up at our capitals in our, in our, in our secular places of governance. Like we, we would almost put the Ten Commandments side by side with our Constitution. Uh, ACLU and other organizations, secular organizations, they've been trying to remove the Ten Commandments. They've been successful a lot of places. So, you know, the argument is separation of church and state. We all get that. Um, but you can't take the Ten Commandments out of somebody's heart. You can destroy the statue, but you can't take it out of the heart because it was meant to be written on the heart. Ten Commandments is, it changed the world. And I can't talk about Moses without going over each each of, uh, each of them. You might not what the, know what they are. It's okay if you can't you know, recite the Ten Commandments right off the top of your head, but you, you know them. And, and actually, you know them intuitively. You know that there's certain truths about these commandments that every believer, every Christian, every Jew should get. Like, you just get it because it's just a part of your culture. But there's another power to the Ten Commandments that has seeped into the general consciousness of every human being. Every human being has to bear witness to these Ten Commandments. Oh, yeah, that's kind of cool, huh? <laughs> so, in one sense, they're kind of like, well, they're kind of simple, no duh. But we're gonna, I'm gonna, I need to pick them apart a little bit. On a historical lens... Like, if there wasn't these Ten Commandments, and if these Ten Commandments did not get translated to other cultures and even other religions, because you, you see it almost mimicked in other religions and other ancient sources, if it hadn't of, well, we're just like a bunch of animals. The Ten Commandments, I believe, is one of the, the documents that, that we begin to learn and understand and grasp that, that keeps us from tearing each other apart and just doing, acting like you know wild chimpanzees or something like that. This separates us from the animal kingdom, understanding these commandments from a spiritual perspective. So it's a big deal. Ten Commandments are a big deal.
If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy. There's three accounts of this story. One in Deuteronomy and two in the book of Exodus. Every time. I have no problems with this machine throughout the entire week. I don't have problems doing it with weddings. I don't have problems taking notes. Every time I preach, there's something wrong with that little machine. Oh, my goodness. All right. They believe we are Deuteronomy... Crystal, do you have my reference on Deuteronomy? What is it? Five. Okay, bring it up. Okay, Moses summoned all Israel, and he said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and the laws I have declared in your hearing today. Learn them, and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb or Sinai, mountain of God. It was, not our, it was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At the time I stood the Lord, and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So that's the first one, but we are going to work backwards, okay? And then let's look at Exodus There it is. Now it's working. This is Exodus. Which one? 32. Here, Israel, you are about to cross the Jordan and go into a disposed nations, gather strongs. Okay, let's skip down to verse 7. Remember this and never forget how you aroused the anger of the Lord your God in the wilderness from the day of Egypt, the day you left Egypt until now. You have, um, you have been rebellious, rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath. He was angry enough to destroy you. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, because the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, real quick. 
who else uh, spent some time in the Lord fasting for 40 days and 40 nights? Okay, so this is another, this is another Christ foreshadowing. We see Moses acting like Jesus. He is receiving the covenant. He's see, receiving the law. Jesus is going to give us the new covenant. And so they act very similar in this case. The Lord gave me the stone tablets. Verse 11, at the end of the 40 days, the Lord gave me two stone tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord told me, go down here at once because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I have commanded you, and they have made an idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I have seen these people, and they are stiff-necked people. Let me alone so that I may destroy them. Okay, that's heavy stuff. Now, before Moses ascends this mountain, Exodus tells us that the Lord was speaking to the people. In one of these audible voices, everybody could hear. Everybody could hear the declaration. Everybody could hear the Ten Commandments. So before Moses trekked up and before he did his 40-day fast, before he moved into God's presence, before he moved into this very sacred place, into the darkness where you could feel the presence of God, before he saw they call it the backside of God. So before he witnessed the exiting of God's glory, God was already talking to the people. They just weren't listening. God gave the people at the base of the mountain, he gave them these Ten Commandments. Audibly, verbally, they heard it. And then God and Moses were probably like, uh... I don't think they got it. We should probably write this stuff down. <laughs> you ever, do you have kids? Anybody, uh, an, uh, an employer or a boss, and you're trying to communicate with somebody, and you're like, I don't think that thing sunk in. We should probably write it down. Let's put this in writing. And that's what's going on. Because they, you know, they heard these words, and, but they just didn't, they didn't grasp it. It needed to literally be written in stone. And so let's look at the Ten Commandments. And we're going to start backwards. We're going to do a countdown. It's probably the first time you've ever heard the the Ten Commandments presented this way. (laughs) Usually you start with number one and number two. But uh, now let's start with number ten. Thou shalt not steal. Kind of like a no-duh, right? (laughs) Like everybody knows this. Like intuitively, every culture, every person has some type of a moral compass where we know deep down inside that it is not okay to steal somebody else's stuff. It says you can't steal this person's house. You can't steal this person's slave. I know, we'll talk about that later. Uh, You can't steal this person's donkey. You just can't steal stuff. I honestly believe before this was written... They're like, yeah, if I want it, I'm going to take it. And maybe you do know some people like that. Do you know some people that uh, the law does not apply to them? Like they just feel above the law, and if, if they want what's yours, and if they can get away with it, they're just going to take it. They have no moral compass. 
Raise your hand if you know somebody that doesn't have a moral compass. Thou shalt not commit adultery. All right, so you're just, you can't sleep around. You have to be faithful to one person. Like we know this. Like our laws know this. And once again, it's built off of these commandments. They should not commit adultery. It's, it's, it's wrong. So not only should you not steal or covet whatever somebody else wants, but you shouldn't cross those sacred moral boundaries. Marriage is between a man and a woman. One man, one woman. I could probably make it work, but most people can't have multiple wives. <laughs> it's too complicated. <laughs> There's a spiritual connotation to this, too. Now, after 20 two years of formal ministry and going, growing up in a, in a household that has been dedicated, dedicated its life and heritage to ministry. Uh, we have seen more on, one, on more than one occasion some adultery in the church. We've had to pastor people through adultery. It's, one of the, it's by far one of the hardest things that, that a pastor has to do is has to try to minister to somebody that has been betrayed on that level. Like, the wound is so deep because the marriage union is a spiritual sacrament. So it has a... The betrayal is more than just being stabbed in the back by your best friend or by your girlfriend or boyfriend. The betrayal runs so deep. And the guilt and the shame, the embarrassment that's associated is some of the, again, some of the hardest stuff that we've ever dealt with. So we understand the power that adultery can have, the evil power that, that adultery can have. We also believe that God redeems, that God saves, God heals, God restores. has to be. Now here's the spiritual connotation. Now although you may have never stepped out on your loved one, and you, you might never have those inclinations. All of us, including myself, are guilty of committing adultery against the Lord. And so when we turn our back upon the Lord, when we are unfaithful to Him, did you know we just like blow it off. Oh, I'm going to go party. Oh, I'm going to have a, I'm going to go sin. I'll ask for forgiveness later. Right? We're, we're a grace-filled church. We believe that God forgives sins all day long for eternity. Like, that's what he does. He's a good and gracious God. He forgives sins. I'm so grateful he does. So that's true. But what else is true is that God feels that betrayal of adultery when we sin against him. So yeah, he's going to forgive you, but did you know that his heart is broken in the same way a spouse's heart is broken when they find out that somebody's been unfaithful? So that's the powerful spiritual connotation. So don't commit adultery against your spouse, but don't commit adultery against the Lord either. Next one is another no-duh, uh, thou shall not murder. 
Some Bibles might say kill. The Hebrews, um, Hebrew scholars know it to be murder because the Israelites are going to be unleashed into the Holy Land and they're going to kill a lot of people. But they're not murdering. I know it's conversation for another day. But yeah, that's in there for a very specific reason. Because again, they're on almost animalistic levels of carnality. Not only do they want to sleep with everybody, but they also want to murder people. Like it was almost accepted. They just I'm going to murder. If I can get away with it, I'm going to murder. So thou shalt not murder. We know that one. Uh, next one. Honor your mother and father. This is the only one with the promise. Is it will go well with you. It will go well with your soul. Honor your father and mother and you will be blessed. This was some this is an important one in our culture because we just we just don't do this anymore. We don't honor our mother and father and and nor do nor does our general culture value the elderly like other cultures do. The American culture is kind of terrible at this. But if, and I know this might be difficult for some of you to hear, but if we don't honor our mother and father, at least in mind and at least in spirit, you ready for this? This is going to be tough. Some of you are missing out on blessing are missing out on God's provision and God's will in your life because you're not able to honor your mother and father. And I know exactly what you're thinking right now, but Pastor Josh, you don't know how terrible my mother and father have been. I understand. Again, after all these years, I know these stories. Regardless, the Word of God says that we have to be faithful in this. If we're in the area of unforgiveness towards our parental figures, you know, maybe they didn't raise you right. Maybe they put too much pressure on you. Maybe there was even levels of abuse. What are you supposed to do in honoring your mother and father? First thing that you have to do is you have to, pay attention to this, you have to choose to forgive. Forgiveness is not an emotion. Forgiveness is something that you don't want to do. Forgiveness is something that you choose to do. And when you choose to forgive whoever it is that has hurt you or disillusioned you, maybe even abused you, once you choose to do that, then you actually free yourself to receive the blessings of God. Like that's actually held if... The blessings of God are held if you are holding a parent in contempt. If you're holding a parent in bitterness, then those blessings are, God, God can't release them to you yet. And so it is a choice. And then you do what I did this morning and yesterday morning, you spend that quality time with Jesus to walk you through those emotions that you do not have, that you do not possess. You will, you will allow the Holy Spirit, like, look, we all need a counselor, right? We all need a secular counselor. Some of us need therapy. Some of us need more therapy than others. But the best therapist in the universe is the Holy Spirit. 
And you, you invite that into your little own personal counseling session with Jesus, and you allow the Holy Spirit to give you the emotions to forgive because you've already made the choice to forgive. And then the freedom will come after. Some of you have parents that are worthy of honor and respect. Some of you don't. But the Word of God says that we've got to honor them all, whether you like it or not. So I want to encourage you to learn how to be blessed and to go after this, this spiritual truth. And, you know, maybe you can find a couple of things to honor your parents for. I know that you've got at least one thing that you can honor them for, and that is you having the ability to suck air. That they gave you life, and that life is precious. So you can honor them for at least one thing. Amen? All right. I want you to be blessed. I don't want any of these hindrances. You know, sometimes we're not blessed because it's Murphy's Law, because life is hard and bad things happen to good people. Sometimes we're blessed because we're not following the book. Yeah? All right. Let's be blessed. Next one. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You're doing it right now. I know it's on Sunday and not Saturday, but this is the new covenant. You need, to, you need to keep this gathering sacred. You need to keep this gathering holy. It is this rhythm, this divine rhythm that God breathes into our existence. This, again, this keeps us from being animals. It is this constant pattern of Sabbath rest. We've got to keep it holy. This is in the top ten, folks. I don't know how else to say it. In the New Testament, Paul says, yeah, you guys only quit forsaking the gathering. You need, to, you need to make sure that you have, ready? No one likes to be disciplined, but you have this discipline built into your life, into your habit structure. You get that every seven-day rotation in. It's a requirement. Change your mindset on this one. You get to do Sabbath. I mean, yeah, you have to do Sabbath, but you also get to do Sabbath. I get to do this. I get to do this. I get to be with God's people once a week. It gets me through the week. I get to be in the presence of God not only personally, but corporately. There's something spiritual and, I don't want to use the word magical, but it just feels good to worship with you guys. I can't tell you how much joy it brings to me when I'm in the back and I hear you guys singing praises to the Lord. It's the best thing in the world to hear you guys Sabbathing well, to see the Spirit of God rest upon His people and to strengthen them and to give them the rest to face their Monday. You need this, folks. All right, this one's fun. Thou shalt not take the Lord's thy name in vain. All right, so don't take the Lord's name in vain. A couple ways that we can look at it. Don't say bad words. That's one way. But actually, that's not what this means. That's not what this actually means. I mean, you shouldn't be saying bad words to begin with. I mean, it's in the Bible. You know, make sure you watch what you say. 
But when this says, don't use the Lord your God's name in vain, what it literally means is that we can't say, um, God is directing me to tell you to sign over your mortgage to me. Thus saith the Lord. Okay? Um, if you were once a teenager and you were in a romantic relationship, God is telling me that I need to break up with you. That's, you know, that, I mean, it, it sounds, I mean, we've all done it, or at least I've done it a couple of times. But it's an easy way out. It's a scapegoat. It's, it's using God as your excuse. And it happens on multiple occasions. You can use God for excuses for everything. Oh, it says God's, you know, God, God wants me to, to go over here and do this. I mean, only you know that, if that's true or not. If it's not true, and if you're telling everybody that God's told you to do something that God did not tell you to do, you are literally breaking commandment number three. Doing something that God didn't tell you to do and then saying, telling everybody else that God told you to do it is breaking law number three, using God's name in vain. It is make, it's like swearing upon something and saying, thus saith God. And the importance of it is, is that there is power in your words. If there is a situation or a person that you do not like, that you, was, that you wish was dead, I know. I, I just, that's just me. I just, sometimes I just wish people were dead. And, yeah. You know, this is my head. I know. Yeah. It just, it's just me. So, all right. And you say, GD that person. You can fill in the words, right? If you say that, you're, so not only are you saying a bad word, it's a double whammy, but you're also using God's name in vain to do something to that person that is not inside of God's will. Because God doesn't want to damn anybody, does he? And so it is illegal for us to damn people with his words and then to, to put God on the end of it. That's dangerous stuff. You, you don't want to do that. All right. And they had to be told to do this. All right, the next two, I'm kind of mashed together a little bit. Number two is thou shall not have any engraven images or idols, right? And then what's, you might know this one. What's commandment number one? Yeah, don't have any other gods before me. Now, at first glance, that might seem like it's talking about the same thing. But it's not. It, there's a difference. There is a nuance. Yes, uh, when the ancients would worship gods, they would, they would make a little idol, and then they would bow down to it, and then they would worship the image of the demonic spirit behind the idol. And when God and Moses begin to structure the Hebrew religion, they, were, they stripped out all of these idols. I guarantee you there was some guy like me that's very visual that says, hey, 
we, and actually we do know this because we have them, we should make a statue of Yahweh. I'm having a hard time imagining what God looks like, so let's, let's make a statue of him. And that was not permitted. There's some very specific reasons why. Now the other part, commandment number one, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. So the other gods before me, okay, again, there's Yahweh, there's, there's God, capital G, but then they, they were all playing around with other gods. They, were, they still had their Egyptian gods that were fun and sexy. You know, they were, they were all these Mesopotamian gods that came into the Levant or what is modern-day Israel. You know, those were all fun because they're all prosperity gods. You know, you pray to Baal, and he's going to make your crops grow, and he's going to give you some money. You pray to Asherah, and she's going to make you fertile and make you pregnant. Like, there were all these really cool gods. There's the gods of war. There's, I mean, any god that you could possibly want. And so God, God, God's people were attracted to these things. They wanted them. It was good entertainment for them. It told them what they wanted, but not what they needed. That's what gods will do. And, I, and you're like, well, Pastor Josh, I am not struggling with this whatsoever. I have no desire to bow down and worship Zeus or to worship Aphrodite. I don't even like the other gods. Like, I, This is not an issue for me. Unfortunately, it's an issue for everybody. Because we all have idols and we all have gods that if we are not mindful, we will put them above our God. And so, let me ask you a question. What, is, what are you putting above God in your life right now? What is more important than God? Is it your career? Well, guess what your God is? Is it your car? Well, guess what your idol is? Is it your... You know what's amazing about our culture? We have like the coolest idol in the world. <laughs> this is the coolest idol I think I've ever seen. Back in the day, in Ephesus, they had these really cool idols that were like little tourist attractions. And, you know, you just take them and you put them in your pocket. And whenever you wanted to be entertained, you pull the, the, uh, yeah, the Ephesus idol out. Well, whenever I'm bored and I need to be entertained, I don't want to do my private time with God. I don't know. I'm on TikTok. I'm not on TikTok. I don't have that one. But do you see the point? Do you see how easy this can be an idol? Do you see how easy all the other desires and impulses in our life, if we give it enough attention, could become a god? So we, have to, we, we, we shouldn't be pointing ourselves on superstitious people that bow down and worship idols. We need to take care of our own business ask ourselves our own questions. What are the gods in my life? What are the idols in my life? Now, the difference between the idol and the god, between number one and number two, it's a very fine nuance. And if we're not careful as believers, we can get sucked into it. Again, like I am a visual person. Most guys are visual learners, we're attracted visually to things. We like objects. We like good-looking cars. We like things. We, you know, we're, we're, we, that's, how we're, that's how we're designed. That's how God designed us. And if there is an object that catches our attention, 
can easily become an idol. That object, you ready for this? That object can even be in the context of a Christian setting. Are you, are you guys okay for a second? Okay. Now, the easy one to pick on. I mean, if you've been with our church for a while, you know I like Catholics. I love Catholics. I, I see them as our brothers and sisters in Christ. But if they are spending too much time focusing on the statues and on the crosses and on the crucifixes and on the saints, like if that is their thing, they could easily fall into the trap of idolatry. So something that the Reformations had to work out in the 1500s. I am not saying that images are necessarily bad, but it is the place that we put them in our heart that can be dangerous. Okay? So, I might need, it's like, oh man, I'm having a hard time connecting with Jesus. I might need this painting. Right? I love it. It's like, oh, I'm attracted to that painting. It's like, okay, okay, time to spend some time with Jesus, right? Time to know what his, his priorities are. His priorities are to bring us around the table and to sit us down and to have a meal with us. So this is, that painting is a visual aid that can help us. So your Catholic friends, they might have some visual aids that help us. But if it takes the place of that personal relationship, then it becomes an idol. For example, I walk like I'm a little down, I'm a little distracted, and then I have this beautiful this painting. This something that a Christian created, something that tells a story. I can think about it, I can meditate on it. I'm like, okay, thank Jesus, thank you, thank you for bringing me back. And thank you, thank you for using the arts to do it. Thank you for using the creative arts to do it. But now, if I come in and I'm just like burning incense, and then I begin, and this is the only thing that I pray at, this is the only location that I can find Jesus, then I have made that painting an idol. Like, if I have to have that painting to connect to Jesus, and that's it, then I've, I've created an idol in that, in that painting. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Now, I know we can all bash the Orthodox expression. We all can bash the Catholic expression because we can see how it is it slipped into this. My father has a beautiful icon. It's about... You didn't, where did my dad go? He snuck out. It's about this big. It's probably 7th century. And it's well done. So it has a Madonna and a child. And then it's overlaid with silver. And it's done very well. There's some icons that aren't done very well. This one's done well. This one was done by an artist. And the purpose of it is that it would sit in your home, and as you would walk into your home, you would see the Blessed Mother, and that would remind you of what you are supposed to do. Now, if you've ever seen icons or Byzantine art, you're looking at it like, eh, that's kind of, it looks like, it doesn't look that great. I like Greco-Roman art better. It's more realistic. 
It seems like it's better. It seems like this medieval stuff is lousy. Did you know that the, the people that made the icons, that was intentional because they didn't want people to fall into idolatry? It was just a physical aid. And so they smashed them down and they crammed them down. And so they have this, this piece of art that would draw you to them. Now, for us, it still might seem weird. Like, why would I put an icon in my house, Pastor Josh? That seems really weird. And technically, it kind of is. But I got some, I got some bad news for you. Um, we bring Christian idols and icons into our house every time we turn on the TV. We had a little debate a while back inside of our church family on who's the best Jesus. There was Team Jim Caviezel, and then there was Team Jonathan Ramey. Jim Caviezel is the Jesus of the Passion of the Christ movies. I have said from the stage, Jim Caviezel is my Jesus. You might remember me saying that. When I pray to Jesus, I'm praying to Jim Caviezel because that's who he is. I've heard other people in our church say, Jonathan Remy is my Jesus. When I'm praying to Jesus, that's who I'm praying to. All right, do I have that picture? Let's bring it up. So who's your Jesus? Like, which one is he? Okay, that's Jim Caviezel. Ladies like Jim. <laughs> I forgot who that guy is. That's Jonathan Ramey. And then this one was uh, Jesus of Nazareth, which is what I grew up on. So for a long time, that was, that was it. So these movies are powerful declarations. They're powerful works of art that bring humanity into connection with spirituality and with Jesus. But these guys are not Jesus. And if your spirituality is centered around just watching The Chosen, guess what you have in your life? You have an idol. It cannot... Film and cinema, artwork, icons, crosses, objects, symbolisms. It cannot replace that personal relationship with Jesus. Unfortunately, we do not know what he looks like. But we can't fall prey to these traps of saying, okay, when I'm praying, I'm praying to Jonathan Ramey. Did you see how tricky this could possibly be? I mean, it comes from a place of insecurity. It comes from a place because we want to know. We want, we want solid, empirical evidence of what God looks like. But it's just not, this is not how it works, folks. It's not how it works. You can use these incredible works of art, these films, you can use them as an aid, but it is not a replacement for your relationship with Jesus. Amen. So, you see how easy we could fall into idolatry if we're not careful? Can God use a film to save somebody? Absolutely. Can God even use a symbol to draw somebody in? I don't know. I think so. So these Ten Commandments, they're obviously very powerful. They're obviously very deep. They changed the course of history. I believe they even rewired our collective consciousness to not be wild animals. 
from these Ten Commandments is going to branch off another 619 other laws that we're supposed to follow. Some of them are kind of weird. I'm breaking one right now because I got a haircut yesterday. Some of you have been breaking some because you've got some tattoos. You've marked your body for the dead. You're in trouble. Some of you had a cheeseburger yesterday. Sorry, you're screwed. So, now, I don't want to say that flippantly, but they do serve a purpose because what the Ten Commandments do and what the Torah law does is that it, it takes a look at you, and if you're careful in your reading, it will show you what's wrong with you. So all Scripture is God-breathed, and all Scripture is useful. All Scripture will instruct if you're reading it well and if you're reading it properly. You will see the significance of the dietary laws for those people at that time because it is showing them what is wrong with them. What was wrong with them? Well, they were looking like a bunch of Egyptian pagans is what was wrong with them. You couldn't tell the difference between the two. And so God had to institute these dietary laws and these cultural laws, these things that don't make sense to us. But I guarantee you, it made 100%, it was clear to them. Like, oh yeah, we've got to look different from the world. Now, as Christians, we need to look very different from the world these days. And so you need your, you need your Bible, you need these Ten Commandments, you need the law to show you what is wrong with you, to show you how stinking dirty you are. One of the interesting things that we see is that people don't even know that they're lost these days. People don't even know that they're not even saved. People don't even know that, that their sins haven't been washed away. They just walk around in the muck and the mire. They don't realize that there's something desperately wrong with them. But when you get into the Word of God, it does something very powerful. It shows you where your imperfections are. It shows you what's wrong with you. There's a lot of ways that we can view our Bible. It's a love letter, love letter from God. Your Word of God is an instruction book. It's a map. It speaks directly to you. If you want revelation, read your book. Some of us are looking for some special divine revelation. Well, you can get it by reading the book, or you can get it by hanging around holy people, but you can get revelation if you push in. Numbers of ways that you can do it. So the Bible does a lot of things. But one of the beautiful things that it does, and specifically these commandments, it shows us what's wrong with us. So think about today, think about the Bible, think about these Ten Commandments as a mirror into your soul, showing you what's wrong. So here's a mirror. Think about this as those Ten Commandments that we just looked at. Yeah? Oh, look at you guys. You guys look so good. You look better in the mirror. It's a nice mirror. It's super clean, and it is perfect. There's no scratch. There's no blemish. Those, no, those cool antique mercury bubbles that I buy. Like, I actually buy those old junky mirrors that you can barely see out of them because I think they're cool. But there's nothing wrong with this one. It's perfect. Guess what else is perfect? Your Bible. It's inerrant. It's perfect. And, it, and if you're looking at it, and if you're honest with yourself, when you read your Bible, it will show you what's wrong. So when you're reading these Ten Commandments, you'll take a look at it as if you're in a mirror, and you're like, oh my gosh, I did that. 
And then you need to confess. So when you look in the mirror, you're going to see all the little imperfections. When you look in your Bible, you're going to see some of these things that God wants you to work on. You will see, like I am, like, oh my gosh, Pastor Josh needs to get back on his diet. Right? Pastor Josh needs to shave. Pastor Josh needs to... uh, um, I've got a couple of cold sores brewing, so I need to take care of those. So your Ten Commandments are going to show you what's wrong with you, but you know what it can't do? It can't fix you. It can't clean you. The law can't clean you. The law only points out what's wrong with you. For example... If I am looking into the word, if I'm looking into the law, and I see how dirty, I see how messed up, I see how dysfunctional I am, and then I take that law, and then I try to clean myself with it. You know, how's it working out? Am I getting clean? I got lots of problems, everybody. And I'm just going to focus on all these problems. Now, I know, because Jesus said, I know that I have never committed adultery. I've never murdered anybody. Although, sometimes I want to murder your kids. But I've never murdered anybody. But what Jesus says is that if I've ever thought those thoughts, I have actually committed that sin in my mind. So the unfortunate truth about all of this is that I have broken every single one of those Ten Commandments, and so have you. And there's no way you can get yourself clean by rubbing it all over you. This is the original, this is the original covenant. This is the original deal. It shows you what's wrong, but only Jesus gets you clean. This covenant is a powerful covenant. We have to have it. The Old Testament is just as important as the New Testament. Don't ever let any preacher tell you otherwise that it's not irrelevant. It's totally relevant. It shows you everything. Gives you the narrative, gives you the grand story, it tells you how much God loved his people. When Moses finally comes down from Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, you know what he does? He comes down. He has spent 40 days, 40 nights, hasn't eaten anything, moved into the darkness with God, saw some form of image of, of, of Yahweh, like the big God, like he had experience that no other human has ever had. He literally sees the finger of God carved into stone. Moses didn't chisel it out through inspiration. God literally carved those stones, those ten those commandments. He comes down from the hill. And he sees all of God's people. He left them. They heard the audible ten commandments. They knew it. And they rejected it down there. Moses comes down the hill, and it's like a combination of Mardi Gras, Coachella, and Lollapalooza all mixed up into one. They're having this big, giant, wild party. They talked Aaron 
the high priest, Moses' brother, they talked him into making a gold calf. Moses comes down the hill and it says that he was hot with anger. Moses is, he's angry. Uh, scholars um, debate whether his, his anger was justified or not. Like, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Like, is, was God okay with his anger? Like, because God gets angry at, at these people too. Like, like, we don't know. But what we do know is like Moses, in his fit of rage, takes the Ten Commandments and he smashes them. Pulls himself together for a little bit and then begins to intercede with the people because it seems like at this moment God's going to smoke them all. He de- God definitely wants to smoke Aaron. And so like, Moses calms down a little bit and says, God, please don't kill my brother. I mean, Aaron committed spiritual adultery with the Lord, idolatry, put God's before him. Uh, there was probably some other things that he was doing that, you know, we don't know for sure, but we know at least those three. But he was probably partaking. If he could be talked into making a golden calf, there's probably some other things that he was talked into that night. For those of you that have kids, have you ever left them alone? And then come home with a trashed house. Or maybe this was you. Your parents left you alone and you decided to have a party. (laughs) Have you ever come home? Or have you ever walked in on somebody or some situation that you knew that was not right and you got angry? Is that anybody here? Is that just me? Okay. That's the situation. And when you find yourself dealing with people that have let you down, that have committed adultery against you, that have frustrated you, that that you're just completely disillusioned with, do you want to know what your impulse is, what your natural inclination is? Is that your natural inclination is going to claim self-righteous justice, and you're going to take that law and you're going to smash it over people. When what you should be doing is saying, This is what the Bible says about your condition of your soul right now. But here's the answer. It is the new covenant. It is the gospel grace of Jesus Christ. So if I could have the band come up. And uh, we're going to wash our faces. We're going to wash away all the dirt and all the grime. Today... We're going to get clean before the presence of the Lord. Because when you see your problem in the mirror, okay, listen to me. When you see your problem in the mirror, when it has been revealed to you, I don't know, let's pick one. Um, Stealing, all right? Thou shalt not steal. When you, when you look in that mirror and it's highlighted to you that this is what the Lord wants you to work on, you need to quit stealing, right? So here's the rub. You know you should quit stealing, amen? Because that's what the Bible says. Quit stealing. Thou shalt not steal. 
But if you're looking in that mirror constantly at your dysfunction of theft, I steal, I steal, I steal, I steal. I don't want to steal anymore. 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 I want to quit stealing. I got to quit stealing. Self-will, strength, mind power, willpower. Let me go get to some self-help books. I'm going to quit stealing. Uh, Guess what you're going to do next week? You're going to go steal something. (laughs) But... If you're having that personal, it's like, oh my gosh, I've been stealing. This just revealed this in my heart, that I have a theftful heart. I'm covetous. I'm greedy. And if you, instead of focusing on your greed, you just focus on Jesus, well, then it just washes away. I don't know who said it. A lot of people say it. It's kind of cliche. But what you resist will persist. So if you're resisting that thing, it's going to continue to have power. The more you focus on it, the more power it has over you in your life. But the more that you focus on Jesus, the more that you focus on him, the more power he has in your life. More importantly, the more like him you become. Amen. And you become, you become the embodiment of the law. This is the body of Christ. This is the bread from heaven. This is what fed those unruly, stiff-necked people. (laughs) Sometimes you and I can be an unruly, stiff-necked person. God has given us his provision, his bread from heaven. We need to receive this bread with a thankful heart. You get to eat this bread. You get to eat this flesh. You get to receive God's provision when you are in proper relationship, when you're connected to the body. Receive the body of Christ for your provisions. A lot of Moses' actions and a lot of his situations from fasting 40 days and 40 nights from delivering God's people out of slavery into the desert and into the promised land. These are all foreshadowings of what Jesus does for us. Moses is important because he acts a lot like Jesus. But there's also times as we could see when he smashed the tablets when he acts a lot like us, when Moses acts very human. So we actually have something more powerful than Moses' snake and his rod. We have the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And so when we lose our temper, when we're angry at people for disappointing us, when we're angry at ourselves for not being as clean as we ought to think we should be, one simple gesture wipes away all of our tears and all of our sins and makes us pure, spotless snow. The blood of Jesus Christ is the only thing that gets you clean. It's the only thing that makes you whole. It's the only thing that forgives you of your sins and your dysfunctions. Receive the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the cleansing of your souls. Come to the front. Our affection, our devotion.
God bless you all as you return to the Lord. He loves you. He's got a way for you. He's here to strengthen you and encourage you. God bless you all as you get back forgiving to even the worst of the worst in your life. I hope you all feel clean today because if you did business with God, you are clean. Let's stay that way this week. Amen. Let's stay that way. I send you all off with a blessing and in this series I'm sending you off from a blessing from Deuteronomy. It's called the Priestly Blessing. And there is a good chance that Aaron wrote it. The guy that made the gold cap, the guy that had the biggest screw up in this whole story. It goes like this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he turn towards you in your times of need. May he be gracious towards you. And may he fill your home with peace. Go in that blessing. Be encouraged. God's a good God. He's on your side, and he wants to get you whole. God bless. Hey, uh, we need to tear down for VBS, so if you're around and if you're able-bodied, we need to stack some chairs and roll some tables out. But also, please, let's hang out with the Vias. Let's give them a blessing and a hug and a goodbye gift. Thank you.